Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, October 20th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The FDA is facing a watershed test of its authority as it tries to revoke the approval of a drug meant to prevent preterm births. Lawyer and bioethicist Holly Fernandez-Lynch joins us to explain the McKenna controversy. Researchers at Boston University crafted a hybrid version of SARS-CoV-2, and people were not pleased. We talked to Stats' Helen Branswell about what did and what didn't happen in the lab. But first, a word from our sponsor. The rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines has pushed mRNA forward in the fight against cancer and complex diseases. Scott Ripley, General Manager for Nucleic Acid Therapeutics at Cytiva, is here to tell us more. mRNA is joining other scientific advances like CRISPR, immuno-oncology, and intracellular antibodies to drive new treatments and transform patient care. With mRNA clinically validated, therapies are accelerating through to approval. Biopharma is getting ready for an explosion in manufacturing demand at all scales. And at Cytiva, we're thrilled to help them along on that journey. You can learn more at cytiva.com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. FDA's accelerated approval program is essentially a regulatory carrot and stick. If your drug seems to improve the lives of patients with a serious disease, you can get it onto the market faster than normal. That's the carrot. The stick is that if the drug turns out not to work in a later confirmatory study, the FDA can revoke that approval. That grand bargain was quite literally on trial this week as the FDA sought to undo the approval of a treatment called McKenna meant to reduce the risk of preterm births, and the manufacturer argued it should stay on the market. The three-day hearing was closely followed by FDA scholars as it presents what seems like a massive test of the agency's authority over the drug industry. Holly Fernandez-Lynch is an attorney and bioethicist at the University of Pennsylvania who studies FDA policy, and she joins us now to talk about the McKenna situation. Holly, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into the specifics of McKenna, why was this drug hearing attracting so much attention? What's at stake here? So this has been a really long saga. Um, This is a drug that was originally approved more than a decade ago in 2011 um, for a really horrible outcome, which is recurrent preterm births. So this is a very, you know, sympathetic um, disease uh, category that we're paying attention to. And over the past, you know, year plus, there's been a lot of attention to the accelerated approval pathway. Um, There's been a lot of discussion about the, the drug for Alzheimer's disease, aducanumab, Um, a recent um, approval outside the accelerated approval pathway for ALS. And so a lot of attention to FDA's approval standards, how much evidence is enough, does the agency have enough authority to uh, withdraw approvals when things don't seem to go well. Um, And so I think this is kind of um, a perfect storm of, you know, a, a 
a condition that we really wish we had a great treatment option for, um, a company that's been pushing back on FDA and, you know, FDA saying to Congress, we wish we had more authority here, Congress not getting their act together um, in the user fee authorization to give FDA some of the authorities that it was hoping for. So I think that this is kind of a, a perfect storm of attention um, that's kind of getting focused on this particular drug product at this point. So as you mentioned, this drug won that accelerated approval in 2011 based on preliminary evidence that it could reduce the risk of preterm birth. It was in 2019 that we saw the results of the confirmatory study making clear that those benefits just weren't there. The drug wasn't effective. Why has it taken until now in 2022 for this whole issue to come to a head? So it's a it's a great um, it's a great question. Why should it take so long to actually confirm a drug that has been marketed to patients, paid for um, by the government and other insurers? Why should it take so long to actually prove that it works? And it highlights one of the challenges about accelerated approval when you get your product approved on the market so that doctors can prescribe it, patients can start taking it outside of trials, insurers start paying for it, it really reduces the incentive for patients to agree to participate in one of those confirmatory trials. Why would you agree to be randomized to get the placebo if you are hearing that your other alternative is an FDA-approved drug, right? The, the FDA approval signals to most people, well, this drug must be safe and it must work. So shouldn't I just use this rather than agree to be in a study? So the company ended up um, doing its confirmatory trial in large part um, with uh, women in Eastern Europe. They had you know, a much smaller proportion of that study done in the US. And so I think a lot of it was a recruitment challenge. Um, the company hasn't said this, but why would they move quickly um, to confirm that the product works? They've got what they want. They, they Their product is approved. They can market it, profit from it. So they've got all the reason in the world to drag their feet. And they've continued to be able to profit um, from the drug since publishing the confirmatory trial, since FDA originally recommended approval during this whole advisory committee process. And even, you know, I was reading a report this morning that the company um, made a statement, you know, to be very clear, this drug is still available for prescription and use. So they are still, you know, able to, you know, generate, generate revenue from this drug, even though it doesn't look like it works. So the result of this week's hearing, which played out over three days, was that that panel of FDA advisors voted 14 to 1 in favor of revoking McKenna's approval. So, Holly, what happens now? What happens next? So, so what happens next is that um, the FDA commissioner and the FDA chief scientist are going to look at all of the information provided by the company, look at you know the the FDA's own analyses of those data, um, the FDA's own um, recommendations from um, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research hear what the advisors had to say and make their assessment. They have um, they have about, I think, six, six months or so that they're um, going to be making this decision over. I suppose it could come sooner than that, but I think the predictions are that, it, that, that it, we're likely to hear the final result of this um, sometime early in the new year. And so they really are, are asking the question, does this drug continue to meet the, um, the standard for approval. Is it safe 
And is there substantial evidence of effectiveness? Um, really, you know, what the advisor said and what um, Cedar has said is no, there's, there's no longer substantial evidence that this drug is effective for its intended use. Just a follow up, Holly, I wonder, thinking more about the timeline, you know, as we mentioned, you know, the confirmatory study read out in 2019. You know, here we are in 2022 uh, and they've had this hearing that, you know, three years. Now, obviously, we've had a COVID pandemic in that time period. Um, but I wonder how you felt about that three year period. I mean, is that just too long? I think it is too long. You know, I don't know how much of it was due to COVID versus how much of it was just due to the the legal processes here. Um, so it, it's important to recognize that accelerated approval, um, you know, as we said at the start of this conversation, gets your drug approved more quickly. The bargain is that on the back end, FDA is able to require confirmatory studies, and it is supposed to have this expedited withdrawal authority compared to the usual withdrawal authority. There are fewer kind of procedural steps. Things are supposed to be a bit more compressed, um, but the company is still entitled to a hearing. So what happens is when those confirmatory studies are done, FDA takes a look at the data, will make a recommendation. Is this good enough for us to move the drug to traditional approval, full approval, or do we need to recommend additional study or perhaps recommend withdrawal? If FDA recommends withdrawal, which is what they did in this instance, the company has the opportunity to ask for a hearing and provide additional evidence, go before an advisory committee, and ultimately have the commissioner of FDA make the final make the final judgment call. So even though it is called an expedited withdrawal process, you can see that there's really not much expedited about it. There's lots of ways that this could have gone more quickly. You could imagine an accelerated approval system in which at the point in time that FDA and the company are agreeing on what the confirmatory trial is going to look like, they pre-specify these are the endpoints that must be met. If they are not satisfied, the drug will be automatically withdrawn from the market. That's not what happens now. I mean, of course, we you know have pre-specified endpoints and that kind of thing, but there's not this kind of agreement up front that there will be automatic withdrawal if you fail to meet those endpoints. And it creates this room for discretion and debate, right? So here we have the company saying, well, we know that the confirmatory study didn't actually confirm benefit, but we refuse to agree that it didn't, uh, th that the drug doesn't work, right? So they're, they're saying, well, maybe Maybe it does work, right? You know, maybe this trial failed um, because the patients were healthier and they had access to better health care than pregnant people in the US. And so there were fewer um, events of interest, right? Fewer premature births than would have been expected had the study been conducted here. So it leaves all of this room for later disagreement. And that process takes some time to work out. Yeah, you you just kind of alluded to, you know, some of the the conversation that or the the narrative that um, you know, the manufacturer of McKenna was was talking about, you know, during these you know, 3 days of hearings, one of which felt, I mean, I'm personally kind of like it came very out of left field. They it was suggested that by taking this drug off of the market, there would be an impact on Black, you know, mother mortality uh, rates in the United States. And I'm kind of curious, I mean, like from from a like bioethical status, I mean, given the conversation that we're having nationally around, you know, 
Black health care and Black maternal health in the U.S., but also noting that they had three years to in between doing that confirmatory study. And, you know, that confirmatory study was mostly in like Eastern European women. What is your your take on that suggestion that the company brought forward that this would have an impact on that population specifically? I think it's really um, exploiting the racial justice arguments and approach, right? So the the company, as you articulate, is saying, look, Black women face a 50% greater chance of recurrent premature births than white or Hispanic women. If we take this product off the market and it in fact works, we are going to be making those um, those women worse off. And, you know, against this backdrop of social justice and racial equity, that would be highly problematic. I think it's um, frankly pulling a fast move, like exploiting this, this um, movement because what black mothers need is a drug that works. How will it benefit them to leave a product on the market that we haven't shown works. And in fact, a lot of this conversation obscures concern about opportunity costs. If you have um, a group of pregnant people who are taking McKenna, the argument is, well, they've got nothing else. That's, That's true. There is no other approved drug for recurrent preterm birth. But if there were to be other companies that want to develop products that might be better than McKenna, they're going to have to, you know, fight with McKenna as the standard of care to, um, you know, get people to enroll in studies of new products that might be better. Um, there, There's a, a real opportunity cost in terms of the money that gets spent on a product that is not necessarily effective, that could be spent on other treatment and care. So, you know, if if um, the the drug sponsor was really so worried about making sure that a product would be on the market for this population that is at higher risk, they could have done a better job, you know, with with the trial. Now it's a little bit tricky because the 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 sponsor today is not the sponsor that was, um, you know, that that owned the product at the yeah. time of the accelerated approval. Um, and so it puts them in this position that the sponsor now is called Covis. Um, so Covis can say, well, look, this this trial that got done had all these problems with it. They've had, you know, several years where they could have been gathering additional data in subgroups where they think that this po- that this product will work and they haven't done that. And so I think it just kind of speaks to it not really being a genuine concern, um, but really like a, a, I don't know, a financial, a financial ploy um, to try to get this product to be allowed to stay on the market. So as you mentioned, we don't know what the outcome of this saga will be in terms of what the commissioner decides for this drug, but this coming in the backdrop of so much attention on accelerated approval tied to Adjuhelm, as you mentioned, but but dating back years, and a notion that, you know, the FDA could be could be more greatly empowered by Congress if Congress were to choose so. Is there a potential that this playing out so publicly and garnering so much attention and really underlining the relative lack of authority that the agency has in a process like this, that that could set in motion a congressional reform that might change how accelerated approval works in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, so so I think certainly this kind of constellation of attention to accelerated approval and FDA's approval standards has drawn the attention of some members of Congress, certainly academics, some members of the public. You know, you're starting to see this um, get paid attention to in um, regular newspapers and not kind of only in <laughs> industry press. Um, so I, I do think um, that the kind of the policy window is right. I don't want to undersell the authority that FDA already has, though. I mean, it would be great if Congress said there's going to be an automatic expiration date on accelerated approval and you have a you know definite amount of time to complete your confirmatory studies. And if they're not completed by that time, you automatically lose, um, lose your approval. Things that would take some of the discretion away from FDA might actually be a very good thing. FDA is in a challenging position, right? They are, you know, getting pressure from Congress. They get pressure from drug companies. They get pressure from patients. Um, the the previous example that we haven't discussed yet, the the um, withdrawal of approval of Avastin for breast mm -hmm. cancer, um, is the only other involuntary withdrawal of an accelerated approval that came before McKenna, which you know may be an involuntary withdrawal. In that context, right, it was really difficult for FDA. They were getting loads of pressure from every from every angle about what the decision would ultimately be. The decision makers are F at FDA are people, right? They they have to deal with that pressure. Um, it's really really challenging. People don't want to go through that a lot, right? Um, and so, if FDA if uh, Congress could take some of that discretion away from FDA, I think it would be better all the way around. But as I was saying, FDA can do can tighten things up a bit on their own, right? They can make sure before they grant accelerated approvals that um, these confirmatory trials are already enrolling, which means that they will complete much more quickly than they otherwise would. They can, you know, compress the process to the very bare minimum allowed in the regulations rather than giving the company lots and lots of extra time um, and kind of fulfilling all of the company's demands about who's going to be on the advisory committee and that kind of thing. So FDA has more authority. And I think this might be an example where we're starting to see them use it a bit more firmly. So getting back to our carrot and stick analogy, Holly, it sounds like you think the FDA should have a bigger stick, but maybe less carrot as well. You know, I am not a critic of accelerated approval. I think the the theory behind it, right, that you allow products on the market more quickly um, so long as you're also able to withdraw them quickly if need be is a good and reasonable compromise. We often hear FDA talking about the balance between different types of errors. It's very bad to not approve a drug that works, right? There, you know, then there's a period of time where patients whose lives could be saved are not saved, right? It is also bad to approve a drug that doesn't work and leave it on the market. So I, I think to the extent that we can improve the balance that was intended by accelerated approval, that is a very good thing. Um, I worry that FDA increasingly accepts, you know lower amounts and less high quality evidence on the front end without being simultaneously willing to tighten things up on the back end. 
And so, you know, the pressure on FDA is to get products on the market quickly. That's what user fees do, right? That's the, that's the measure of success for the agency is how quickly it can get new drugs to patients. And what often gets missed there is like, are these good drugs that patients and physicians should want, um, right? So, you know, the, in, the, in the context of McKenna, it's a drug that might work, right? Um, for some sub, subset of the population, that is not the approval standard. You know, the, the emergency use authorization standard is maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but that's not the, you know, the, the traditional FDA approval standard. And we need a higher bar if these are drugs that all of us are going to be expected to pay for, right? I mean, that's outside of FDA's um, scope of jurisdiction, but that is really, at part, you know, really part of what's at stake here, right? It's, it's, patient health, but it's also these financial implications of what comes along with FDA approval. Well, Holly, thank you for joining us and going through these intricacies uh, with us on the podcast today. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. We are more than two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic, and there's a great deal that we still don't understand about the virus and how it changes over time. So it's a little surprise that academic labs across the world are actively studying the virus. That's certainly true, but one research project out of Boston University became subject to criticism this week after the team published a preprint on a hybrid version of SARS-CoV-2 it had created that was more lethal to lab mice than the Omicron strand. On top of that, there's this whole question whether the project got the proper sign-off from federal officials. So STAT senior writer Helen Branswell has, as usual, given her expert insight into the uproar, and she is here with us now to break down the situation. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, folks. Glad to be here. So, Helen, the initial, I guess, somewhat misleading headline that I think it, it came out in the UK press that kicked off this whole incident was that the hybrid COVID-19 virus that these researchers had created killed 80% of mice in a lab experiment. So put that into context for us. What exactly was created in Boston University's lab and what did they find? Yeah, so that uh, story was in um, the British tabloid, the Daily Mail, a bastion of science reporting. <laughs> <laughs> They, they, and, they took a they took a break from curing Alzheimer's and cancer to to report on this, I think, and from <laughs> making the lives of the royal family miserable. Um, yeah, so so they had spotted this preprint that had been posted by scientists from the Boston, from Boston University that did report on have you know work on a hybrid um, uh, SARS two virus that. Uh, contained the Omicron spike protein on a backbone of the original SARS virus, the Wuhan strain. And uh, what these folks were trying to do was try to figure out what is responsible for pathogenicity with these viruses, like what is what parts of, of the virus um, are triggering pathogenicity. The Omicron uh, spike has tons of... Um, mutations, this work was going to help them look at whether or not Omicron's lesser severity in people was caused by these mutations. 
what they found when they tested this uh, hybrid or chimeric um, virus in mice was that it was actually more lethal to the mice than it than Omicron was, but it was less lethal to the mice than the original Wuhan strain. And that latter part, that it was less lethal than the original Wuhan strain, was kind of left off the left out of the story, or at least out of the headline, right? And that kind of created some of the uproar. Yeah, certainly. It it was <laughs> it wasn't played up. The other thing that wasn't played up is that these mice are sort of exquisitely um uh formulated to be very sensitive to uh the SARS-2 virus. They have all sorts of ACE2 receptors all over them, which is the the receptor that this virus uses um to attach to cells. And so, you know, <laughs> it makes them useful for studying things, but it doesn't recapitulate what happens in people. When you think about it, a hundred percent of the mice died when they were infected with the original strain of SARS too. That's not what happens to humans who were infected with the original strain of SARS too. The infection fatality rate in people was under 1%. So, you know, the fact that, um, 80% of these mice died doesn't tell us that this was a Frankenstein virus that was going to destroy all of mankind. This clearly like inflamed some sort of fear that is out there around, you know, more dangerous pathogens being created in laboratories, you know, across the world. And I don't want us to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, like the the COVID-19 origin debate in Wuhan. But why do you think that this experiment at BU garnered so much attention, knowing what we know about how it this strain compares to the original Wuhan strain? Well, you know, the gain of function debate goes back much further than the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. About a decade ago, it became very inflamed when a couple of very highly respected research groups, one in the Netherlands, one at the University of Wisconsin, were trying to publish some uh, work looking at... Um, H5N1 bird flu viruses and what might make them become more transmissible among people. There was a big uh, objection over whether or not that work should be published. The feeling was that it was, uh, it could be used, was dual use uh, research that it could be used for, uh, you know, by publishing it effectively, you could be giving bad actors a recipe for creating a, a pandemic virus of, you know, incredible danger. And so um, that debate has percolated ever since. The National Institutes of Health came up with a policy, a framework document for how work that could potentially um, make pathogens more dangerous should be conducted. Um, you know, that framework requires groups that are planning to do this kind of work with NIH money to uh, get it cleared by the Department of Health and Human Services first. Um, the important part of that is that it has, we're talking about research that's being done 
with NIH money. And on Monday, when the Daily Mail story came out, it wasn't terribly clear whether or not this work had been done with NIH money. So what have we learned in the days since that initial reaction, both in terms of whether this was done with NIH money and also what the fallout has been? So on Tuesday, I managed to speak to Ron Corley, the director of the um, BU lab where this work was done. And he explained that the BU team didn't go to NIH for, uh, you know, their approval to do the work because this work was not done with NIH money. Some of the grant money that they received from the NIH was used for some stuff that you might consider sort of foundational to this work, but it wasn't exclusive for doing this work. This work itself was funded by the university and was cleared by the university's uh, review committees and by the Boston uh, Public Health Commission. So they really felt like they hadn't needed to get NIH approval. And we haven't yet heard whether NIH believes that Boston University's read on that situation is correct or not. Um, they're still, I think, reviewing the situation. Helen, it seems like a lot of these policies around what the NIH has and and isn't required to sign off on, it kind of predates covid in the fallout from this scenario, is there any discussion around revisiting that and kind of making some gray areas more black and white? So the framework that I mentioned earlier, the one that was developed after that um, kerfuffle over publication of those bird flu studies, it is already under review. And, um, you know, I think there have been a lot of concerns within the scientific community that you know, the guidance isn't particularly clear. Uh, scientists aren't always sure that the work that they're doing would trigger, you know, needing to go to the NIH for, or Health and Human Services for approval of their work. And so they are working on trying to clarify the situation. Um, but they're doing so in a climate of, you know, incredible heat on this topic, uh, you know, the whole issue of the origin story for the SARS-2 virus, whether it spilled over out of nature, as many people believe, or um, was the result of work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as some people believe, um, has really sort of brought this issue to a boil. And people who allege that the um, SARS-2 virus was a result of a lab leak um, also allege that NIH funding was involved in that work and that NIH was not, um, NIH oversight was not sufficient. So it's just a very, very heated issue and one that, um, I think NIH is quite sensitive about at this point and, um, not clear how this stuff all gets resolved. You know, both sides in this debate are very dug in. Hey, Anna, just a question about, 
uh, the rationale for experiments such as the one that Boston University scientists did. I mean, I guess wh- why why is this research important? Why do this? And also, just you know, when I think about an experiment, you know, you, you, you have a question in mind and you don't know what the answer is, so you run an experiment. So, is it possible that in this experiment, in which essentially a chimeric virus was formed, that that the one of the outcomes of that experiment could have been a more pathogenic virus. I mean, it, it turned out that it wasn't, but is that a, was that a possibility? I guess, you know, I, I think that probably going into it, I mean, I haven't spoken to the researchers, so I, I, um, I should be careful about what I'm saying here, but I think going into it, you might have thought that because uh, Omicron caused less severe disease, that the mutations in its spike actually lessen the severity of the, the the infections that result from that virus, you probably wouldn't have anticipated that it would have been more um, uh, more lethal in these mice than than Omicron itself. But one of the you know to get to your question about why do this kind of work, what this work tells us is that the spike protein isn't solely responsible for how uh, severe infection from SARS-2 viruses is. Uh, Because putting the the Omicron spike into the backbone of the original virus produced a virus that was, you know, caused more severe disease than Omicron, that tells you that something in the backbone of the original virus was at least you know, contributing to the pathogenicity of it. And if you can figure out what it is in the other parts of the virus that are responsible for pathogenicity, you could actually try to develop drugs to combat that. So, you know, that's the reason for trying to do this work. Helen, as always, thank you for joining us. Always great to be here. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think a head of lettuce will be the next prime minister of Great Britain. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.